In the early morning hours of March 30th, 2022, a woman was walking up to her front door when she noticed something suspicious. There was an unfamiliar van parked in her neighbor's driveway, and they didn't seem to be home. She brushed it off, thinking it was just a guest, until she reached her front door and found it unlocked. When she cautiously pushed the door open, she saw her couch overturned, belonging scattered, and muddy footprints leading up the stairs. She took a step inside and was startled by the scuffling she heard upstairs. She held her breath and slowly took out her cell phone from her pocket, but it was too late. The door slammed shut behind her, and the scuffling upstairs became footsteps heading right down towards her, and she had nowhere to run. This episode contains themes that may be upsetting to some listeners, with references to death, sexual assault, homicide, child abuse, and torture, among other uncomfortable topics. Listener discretion is advised. If you've ever listened to a true crime podcast, you'll know that they often begin ominously before going into the gruesome and eerie details. Behind every infamous crime, there's a dedicated team of detectives, lawyers, and even clinicians who work tirelessly to solve these criminal mysteries. In today's episode, we look behind the scenes of true crime to learn about forensic medicine, pathology, and nursing, among many other fascinating topics. We also discuss the tragedy of the unmarked graves found across residential schools in Canada and explore the role of forensics in bringing justice and healing to Indigenous communities. Toronto was founded on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit River, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. And this meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. And we're grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. My name is Atifa. And I'm Kayvon. This is episode 106 of Raw Talk Podcast. Can you speak about maybe some misconceptions the public generally has about your profession? I think people are very accustomed to seeing on television or movies like CSI, this very glamorized perception of what forensic medicine generally entails. Yeah, so it's a very good question. It is not like CSI, what is shown in uh, shows. We don't do homicides all the time. Being in Canada, we are lucky to be here. The reason, advancement of technology science, and we have a very low homicide rate. Low homicide rates mean only about 1% to 2% of our workload is related to homicides. Although we hear a lot of uh, homicides here and there because Toronto is a big city, we do mostly natural cases. And then recently because of this COVID and opioid epidemic, our toxicology related like overdose cases went from um, 30% to about 50%. So majority of our cases at this moment are toxicology related deaths and then natural accidents, suicides. So it's a vast majority of cases, not only homicides. The second thing, it is not easy to find a cause of death in some cases. We have to do comprehensive dissection and then uh, modern approach, evidence-based data collection and provide opinion based on the literature and evidence. We can't just taste it and then give this is the cause of death. Oh, this bullet came from there and he died of this toxin. It takes about sometimes three months for a toxicology lab to determine what kind of substances they had. And just by looking at one slide, it doesn't give you the answer. Sometimes we take multiple sections from organs 
and we do different stains to identify. And then we do other testing like molecular biology, DNA, to identify whether it's inheritable. We have them thousands of thousands of genes involved in certain diseases, the infectious cases. And we wear, uh, just like in uh, infectious disease uh, centers, we use all the PPE we have to wear, N95 mask, the face shield, the double gloves, and the scrubs and gowns. And then if you work in the autopsy suit uh, about six to eight hours, it is not that easy to breathe even. Because I have seen sometimes in movies, you just go with the white lab coat and just dissect it. And, oh, this is it. Certain conditions, it is easy. Let's say ruptured heart due to something. You can see it directly. Even we don't have to open. We have modern technology now. Total body CT scans, MRI scans. We can use them. In Toronto, we are lucky to have those. So it is a misconception that just you walk into a morgue without PPE and you always deal with trauma. It is not. Even um, sometimes the forensic pathologists, they get traumatized. Some people, they don't work for a long time. They change their specialty or uh, they take sick leave or because of uh, post-traumatic stress caused by the autopsy for some people. Just because, you know, we see trauma, we don't love them. We don't want people to die from traumatic events. You just heard from Dr. Jayantha Harath, Deputy Chief Forensic Pathologist and Program Director of the Forensic Pathology Program at the University of Toronto. He tells us more about what it means to be a forensic pathologist. Could you maybe start by telling them what the difference is between a pathologist and a coroner? What responsibilities do each have? The main duties of a forensic pathologist is to identification of the disease and exclude trauma when a body comes. Once you exclude a trauma, then you exclude whether any toxicological causes are related to death, and then do a complete body examination, collect samples, and do internal examination by medical process and the, uh, the pathological processes we have learned and dissect them and then take samples for microscopy and other investigations and provide a cause of death. And we help to find out a manner of death to corona as well. And when the injury is present, let's say it is as a result of homicide or a suicide or accident, then we interpret the causation of the injury. What kind of force applied, whether it's a blunt force, whether it's a sharp force, whether it's a gunshot wound, and then we try to age the injury. We collect evidence of documentation by examining a body and ask for various testing like toxicology, microbiology, molecular diagnostics. After that, we collect all the test results and provide the opinion. We call it postmortem examination report or autopsy report. That is the most important document we provide to various stakeholders. It can be a coroner, it can be the police, it can be the courts or the families with our summary and interpretation of the findings. The coroners, depending on the jurisdictions, it is an elected person. In Canada, it doesn't have to be a physician. It doesn't have to be a forensic pathologist. If you talk about various jurisdictions like the BC, Saskatchewan, so they have um, non-physician coroners. Sometimes they may be a lawyer. It may be a retired principal or a scientist with a PhD. In Ontario, by law, all coroners are medical doctors. So they have basically uh, five questions to answer at the end of their investigation. So their role is to find out who is dead, where did the person die, and then when did he die, and uh, how did the death came about, like the cause of death? By what means? It means the manner of death. Manner of death means whether it is a homicide, whether it's a suicide, whether it's an accident, whether it's a natural or they cannot determine. We call it undetermined. So those are the basic things. And then they also generate reports and then they are the first in line to communicate with the families. Forensic pathologists, they generate a report. They directly deal with the police, Crown, defense attorneys, and we testify in the courts. The coroners, usually they don't testify in the court, but some instances, they do that. Next, we hear from Dr. Dirk Heyer, the Chief Coroner of Ontario. He talks about his journey to becoming the Chief Coroner today. 
my journey started back in medical school when I walked into the provincial forensic pathology unit and said, do you have a job? And they provided me a job as an assistant to the pathologists who were performing autopsies on all of the sudden and unexpected and traumatic deaths in the Toronto area. My initial interest arose in death investigation, frankly, from a TV show called Quincy. And it was a medical examiner who examined and understood what happened in the deaths and then tried to think of, were there things we could do to make things better? And that really drew me to the work that I do. And I continue to follow that same pathway. So as a coroner, what does a day in your life look like? My day is pretty much administrative. As a coroner, it really is variable depending on the amount of work that a person does. In Ontario, coroners are licensed physicians for the, in the majority of situations. We do also have nurses that are appointed to have the same duties and powers as a coroner, but most are working in their general practices most of their time. And then when there's a sudden or an unexpected death or a traumatic death, or something from non-natural, they would get called by our office to attend and work together with the police, typically, to understand the circumstances of what happened. So they would move from their practice or what they're doing that day. They would travel out to the location of the death and they would then meet with the police officers often and then make a plan on what investigation steps would be taken. And that might be them examining the body, reviewing the scene, working together with the police, to try to understand things, interviewing family members, friends, looking at different things, and then making a decision about whether there would be an autopsy or not. So that would be much of the front activity, but then following that, there'd be a lot of phone calls, there'd be reviewing of records, talking to families, and, and trying to sort through and navigate to try to fully understand everything that might have led to that person's death. Our next guest is Sheila Early a leader in the field of forensic nursing. She tells us about her professional journey from obstetrics to emergency medicine and eventually forensic nursing. I'm a long-standing nurse. I've been a practicing nurse for five decades. My background has been um, mostly clinical uh, for about 35 years, both in the obstetric area as an educator first and then as a nurse. And then also in 1970, I started working in emergency department, which was called an outpatient department at the time. It became my first love. So I actually stayed there for 35 years. During that time, I was led into an area of sexual violence through a complaint to my department, which I was as a nurse clinician investigating. And that began my journey into forensic nursing, which continues until today. I uh, created the first nurse examiner program in British Columbia in 1994, and I became the first examiner because by the time I created it, I wanted to be one. Through the next uh, several years, 13 to be exact, I worked as a nurse examiner and became coordinator of the program. I have to be truthful in that the uh, nursing world wasn't quite sure what to do with so-called forensic nurses. It was a very new term. Nobody knew what it really meant, and it was just not really accepted that it was nursing because it was felt that, oh, this is really a legal thing. But the reality about forensic nursing is that it encompassed so many parts of uh, sciences, law enforcement, and the judicial system. When I looked at it from the perspective of an emergency department, 70% of our patients, and probably more now, were actually what we would call forensic patient population. That means that they were victims of violence, trauma, sexual violence, intimate partner violence, child abuse, elder abuse, death investigation, mental health, 
corrections, etc. So that meant that the emergency department was really the foremost place for an emergency look at the forensic components to healthcare. So I like to say that forensic nurses deal with the babies who are born to drug-addicted children, or sorry, to mothers, to the person who uh, is deceased through violence or trauma. The other part that's really important to remember about forensic nursing, it is not about victims. It is about anyone who has been subjected to some sort of violence or trauma which affects them. And that's the difference, I think, where we think, oh, well, forensic nursing is about law enforcement. No, it's not. It's about the nursing care of people who have had an unalterable event in their life, which is usually due to trauma and violence. Just to take a step back, before finding about you and your work and reading more about that, I personally had never heard of forensic nursing before, right? So it was something very new to me. And I guess on that note, could you please just very briefly describe simply what is forensic nursing for our listeners? There are many definitions. I think the most succinct one is forensic nursing is where healthcare, the judicial system, and law enforcement intersect. If you think of a circle and you put forensic nursing science here, and then you put the judicial system overlapping it, and then you put law enforcement, and right in the center, all three spheres will coincide. And that's the forensic patient population that we share. For example, a child is being abused at home. They may see a family doctor, they may go to the emergency department, and there may be a fairly plausible explanation for the injury, and it can be documented very briefly, and the child will go home. If you look at that same child with a forensic lens, the forensic nurse has the expertise to say, the mechanism of injury does not match what I see. There is a difference between intentional and unintentional injuries. They're what we call either biomarkers or red flags. When a forensic nurse sees that patient, the documentation may be very different and the referrals may be very different. That may bring the child and should bring it to the attention of uh, social services in whatever province you're in. And in that case, it can also then become part of the judicial system with law enforcement and possibly a criminal case of child abuse. We're very fortunate in Canada where we have a criminal code of Canada which governs every province and every territory. Our laws are the same. So for example, sexual assault is covered by a section called 272. It's the same if a sexual assault happens in British Columbia or in Nova Scotia. That's very different than the US. In the United States, every state has different laws. So it doesn't matter where you do a criminal offense, you are governed by the same laws. When we look at further definition of forensic nursing, it covers all the inner workings of a human being. So their biosystem, their psychosocial system, their financial system, their mental system, their emotional system, as well as their physical well-being. So anything that affects any of those spheres is part of forensic nursing. The other thing I wanted to say is that when we look at forensic nursing, it's anything that's affected by violence and trauma. So there you have kind of three different views of it. Nursing is an essential profession, especially in the field of forensics. Sheila shares more about what made her time as a forensic nurse so rewarding. I have to say from 1994 when I did the very first examination until 2007 when I left that role as a forensic nurse examiner, that was the most rewarding professional experience of my life. Dealing one-on-one with an individual who has undergone that life-threatening or life-altering experience that I talked about and knowing that I can't change what happened to them. 
But what I can do is I can change what happens from here on in. A forensic nursing examination from the medical and forensic perspective can take anywhere from two and a half hours to five, six, seven hours. When you're with that individual for that length of time, you have to use every single skill you have as a nurse and as a person because the first thing that happens is that they need to trust you. And to me, that was the most rewarding experience. Quite frankly, if I could, I would still be doing it. However, education is the next best thing. <laughs> And the joy of being an educator is to watch your students go above and beyond anything you have ever dreamed about. I look at my students from 2005 onward, and I am just in awe of their stretching the boundaries, as Atifa said, to go beyond and to develop and grow programs across Canada that I never imagined, to do innovative, creative ways of being forensic nurses in not only violence, but in other fields too. For example, having forensic nurses at the Ontario Coroner's Service, having death investigators in many provinces, having corrections nurses in the correctional systems of Canada looking at how to do things in a more um, humane way if you want, but also to recognize that perpetrators or what we know as offenders have just as much right to the kind of care that forensic nurses can provide as anyone else. The mental health nurses, the nurses who work in forensic psychiatry, all those build towards bringing the subspecialties if you want in forensic nursing together so that we can learn from each other and what we can also do is promote forensic nursing as a game changer in healthcare. I'm dealing with someone who has had a life-altering experience, whether it be being hit by someone they love or care about, or they've been in a car crash, or they have had what we normally call an accident, which forensic nurses call either intentional or unintentional. If I hit somebody, that's intentional. If I bump into somebody and they fall over, that's unintentional, but the injuries may still be the same. So recognizing the mechanism of injury combines several things. When we look at forensic nursing, we're combining forensic science, because I probably know more about DNA than most police officers because I've taught them. <laughs> it combines what the biology is, what the techniques of forensic evidence are, and how to, first of all, I have to recognize it as a nurse, which is not always easy, but I also have to know how to preserve it. I also have to know how to store it, and I have to know how to document it. We've all seen forensic investigations on TV, but how accurate are these depictions? We asked Dr. Hyatt to explain what they're like in real life. Could you briefly describe what a forensic investigation entails? So how long do these investigations last and who is involved? Yeah, everybody asks the time. And the reality is each individual death takes the time that's required to get the best answers to the questions. And that could take a short period of time or it could take many months. Because what you don't know is when you ask questions, you may get answers that raise more questions. So it's really following the truth. And following that truth can be so long in some circumstances. And sometimes we don't get all the answers we're looking for. So when you look at forensic investigation, it really take you back to what does forensic mean? Well, forensic is evidence and it's understanding, it's the application of legal questions to linking it with science and linking it to the investigation. But essentially it's taking science, bringing it to the law. So forensic analysis of blood for alcohol, that could be for drinking and driving, not in a deceased person for charges. But it's really taking that science, bringing it into the law. 
So our death investigation work would be bringing our knowledge and our skill about death investigation from a medical perspective and bring that to the police. So help them to understand how that death may have occurred and is that something that might be criminal and then the police take charge of it or is it something that may not be criminal and then that allows the police to change their approach to the investigation. So it's really that's the forensic part of bringing the medicine to the law and allowing the law or the legal, the law enforcement to make decisions about what next steps they would take. But it also is significantly of value to bring to inquests. So coroner's inquests where we study deaths in a public way to, again, make recommendations. Because the coroner doesn't find fault or lay blame. Our job is not, we're outside the criminal the world. That's the law enforcement part. We inform the law enforcement when you look at forensic investigations, it's a tough question to use that terminology. Many people attribute that to a homicide. And that, as I said, is very infrequent, thankfully, still way too many, but infrequent compared to much of the work that we do. And our role is often less in a criminal case as uh, multiple gunshot wounds. The way the death happened is pretty clear to recognize and the forensic pathologist would be more giving information to understand the details of that in contrast to a much more complicated mechanism of death. So where there may have been multiple injuries or there may have been multiple circumstances that may have contributed so somebody found deceased without clothing in a rural area in a forest. So what are all the things that happened? So the forensic pathologist will help us to think backwards. And that's where there's much more complexity and much more challenge to the work. So the deaths where injuries are not as clear or as straightforward are the ones where there's criminal concerns are the much more challenging and much more involved investigations. I hope that gives you a bit of a, an understanding of the different types of work that we do. Sheila tells us more about the hands-on aspects of forensic nursing. Just to, to go back, maybe focusing more on the dimension of forensic nursing as a nurse, what kind of samples would you typically work with? I mean, when one thinks of a nurse, you, you talked a lot about working with DNA samples, for example, and your expertise in that, being able to train law enforcement officers. What is the nature of the hands-on work that you do when it comes to the education, but also your own hands-on practical clinical work? Well, as I started the sexual assault nurse examiner program in 1994, that was the focus. The focus was strictly on females, 14 and older, who had presented with a stated history of a sexual assault. And the definition of sexual assault is not a medical term. It is a criminal justice term. So there's a lot of misnaming. So that particular role involved caring for patients, you know, hands-on if you want, a one-on-one -on -one doing, first of all, a head-to-toe assessment. And that's where the skills of the emergency nurse are paramount. As an emergency nurse, I'm trained to find out what is going to be detrimental to your health in three to five minutes because that may be all the time I have. So when you layer that on to someone who has been a victim of violence, that has to be done quickly and inobtrusively in many ways because you're still in the process of gaining their trust. Uh, so head-to-toe examination from the top of their heads, literally, to someone's toes with their consent. I need to stress totally that anything that a forensic nurse does needs to have the consent of the person that they are examining. And if they say, no, I do not want you to look at my scalp or my back or my front, then that is not done. 
because it's different than a life-threatening situation in emergency where you have to save that person's life. Usually this is not the case. It can be and that's why you need to have the specialized skills to find out first. But head-to-toe examination, so that would be full-body examination. Sometimes with a special piece of equipment called an alternate light source, which would show up particularly things that foreign material that might be on the person's body. It also might show bruising, which is still not come out under the surface of the skin. There's still a lot of research about that, so it's not a given. But also documenting every single thing that you find that is not, quote-unquote, normally there. I collect evidence as appropriate. So if I saw a smear of some kind, I would take a swab and sample it, care for it properly and labeling it. I could do 25 samples or I might do one depending on the circumstances. Then I have to preserve them. I have to care for them so that they are not damaged and label them with uh, all sorts of different things. They have to be totally identified. And then at some point, if that case is actually reported to police, then I have to transfer it to law enforcement. In my experience, the range of injuries, if you want, could be from one to I think the most I ever had was 104 and that was 104 documented findings that were on the individual's body. At that point usually we have photography done mostly by police officers but there are some programs that also do their own photography and it's interestingly uh, that in that particular case when I went to court to testify there were photographs of everything that I had identified on the person's body. But my descriptions were more accurate than the pictures in some situations. The other clinical part is that you have to meet that person's needs. What are their needs psychologically and emotionally? What do they need for supports? What do they need for referrals? What do they need to continue beyond the doors of the facility after they leave you? Are they going to be safe? Do they have a safety plan? What do they know about the process according to law enforcement? And to knowing that the consent that we first get at the very first start is cheap to the levels of that particular individual. What do they want? They have the choices. I like to describe the role of the forensic nurse examiner in sexual violence as being offering a platter with a variety of services and the patient or client can choose. It's very different from nursing who says, it's 10 o'clock, it's time to take your pill. And that's where the trust comes because the first time the patient client or client says to you, no, I don't want you to do that. And you say, okay, and you move on. That's where you start to build the trust. This person is not going to touch me unless I give permission. You're giving the power back in any situation of trauma and violence back to the person. At some point in time, you may end up being a witness in court, either a fact witness where you simply say what you saw or an expert where you actually are allowed to interpret. That's an example using sexual violence. The relationship between forensics, law enforcement, and the judicial system is complex. We asked our guests to tell us more about how these sectors collaborate. You spoke about interacting with law enforcement. How does a coroner generally interface with law enforcement? Yeah, if you get a concept uh, across the province, as far as numbers go, there's about 105,000 people die per year in Ontario. The coroner's office or our office will be involved in about 18,000 of those deaths. And typically those will be something non-natural, whether it means trauma, whether it be drug toxicity, whether it be car crash or something of that nature, or somebody who passes and it was really unexpected, so unanticipated. And those ones you want to sort through, could it be trauma or might it be something that's preventable? Of those, it's a small percentage that would be homicides in Ontario. So around three to 400 people, one is too many. It's a smaller number that would be a homicide situation. So as far as the police and the corner intersecting, 
any death that occurs out of a healthcare facility, so not hospital, not a nursing home, typically that will be triggered by a call to 911. So the family or the friends or somebody discover somebody deceased, they panic, not panic, they appropriately call 911. The police and fire and ambulance will arrive. They'll figure out the circumstances and that they, the police would be generally the group that would call the coroner. So they work together and it really depends on the case type. If it's what appears to be a natural death, the coroner would be the lead. If it appears to be a homicide, the police would be the lead and the coroner would be assisting per se. And it's not assisting, but work who would be the lead of the team because it's always a teamwork. So the police and the coroner are very regularly working together, whether it's criminal or not criminal. It really depends on the circumstance. For example, if it's a injury or an accidental death at a construction site or something like that, then the Ministry of Labor, the coroner, and the police would all be working together. A fire, it's the coroner, the police, and the fire marshal that are working together. So it really depends on the circumstance. But law enforcement are generally either leading the investigation from a criminal point of view or working together with the coroner to do the work that we need to understand the death because the coroner brings the medical skills, the police bring the investigative skills. And so the two together then help to sort through the scene work. Then of course there's the forensic pathologists who are the experts in examining and evaluating a deceased person where there's concerns about how that death happened. So they answer how did the death happen, but they also bring significant skill in understanding the way the death happened. Nurses who are in forensic world need to learn how the judicial system works. Most of us, until you become a forensic nurse, would prefer never to be in a courtroom. That's not something that most people would like to do. Whereas the forensic nurse has to not only be comfortable in that courtroom, but know all the rules and regulations of the judicial system so that they can be an expert witness when called to testify. After all these years of forensic nursing, that's probably the thing that scares forensic nurses the most is, oh my, you know, I have had a few examiners over the years that find it a very pleasant experience. I think it's a learned experience and it's also the very last component. If there's a criminal or civil, because nurses can also testify in civil cases, is that's the last piece of nursing care, if you wish, that they can do for their client. You spoke a bit about your work interfacing with the judicial system and how as a pathologist, part of your responsibility is in a service role interacting with the legal system. How often do you find yourself providing testimonies? What does this process look like? And generally, how does a pathologist interface with the judicial system? First of all, um, being a forensic pathologist and trained as a forensic pathologist, we start the process from the beginning. Beginning means we uh, adequately, um, we have about five steps of death investigation, so history and circumstances, external examination of the body, internal examination of the body, and um, ancillary tests and providing opinion. When I get the history and circumstances, usually from the coroner and then from the police, I assess whether it is suspicious or not. Then we involve the police directly. Sometimes the police come for the autopsy, Let's say the police say it is not suspicious. Then when I start the external examination and look at the CT scan, we do CT scans in almost all cases when it comes to Toronto. If I find something unusual, 
I stop the case and immediately call the police. Please come and attend the autopsy. Then collect the evidence because we need to collect the right evidence and then translate to the police custody to send for analysis. And then we adequately document. Document by diagrams. That is very old method, but you know, still we do documentation on diagrams and take note takes. And we use a lot of digital photography now. The forensic ident officers, they are trained for that. We have well-trained forensic photographers in our unit as well. So we do photographic documentation. And then we do CT scan or X-ray documentation, which is a reviewable. At the end, we provide the opinion, the medical legal autopsy report, and shared with the courts and the police and the coroner. So then the Crown start contacting us. Sometimes they don't wait until we get the autopsy report. Immediately after the autopsy, because if they, they might have someone in custody. So what kind of charges they are going to lay for this person? They contact us. What are our findings? Sometimes some hidden, subtle child abuse cases. So they have no idea. They can present as a natural disease. So it's our discovery. And then we immediately inform the child aid societies, children aid societies and the police, and then they start investigation. When the autopsy report is complete, the Crown want to call us as a witness. But the government call us witness, but actually we are a witness of the courts. So we have to provide independent opinion based on our scientific knowledge and what we discovered to protect the community for the administration of justice. And they asked us various questions um, and we are prepared for that and we are trained for that because sometimes the Crown may support us to provide evidence, but the defense, they might not like it. And the defense asked a lot of cross questions to support their client. So we are aware of that. And then the judge play a neutral role Sometimes they are supportive of the witness because we are trying to be independent and neutral. At the end, they decide what kind of charges they are going to put forward for the assailant. But in not every case, most of the time homicides, we go to court, but some homicides, they resolve before it go to court. I mean, they don't call us. They are satisfied with our autopsy report. Sometimes we go only for preliminary hearing. We don't go to superior court because it's settled there. Some cases we have to go to the pre-trials and preliminary and superior court. The field of forensics is dynamic and constantly evolving with novel technology and improved procedures. We asked our guests what it was like watching the field of forensics change over the years. Forensic nursing and forensic science are married because they tell us the best way to collect things, to identify things that are useful to the forensic scientist. And without the forensic scientist, the judicial system would often not have anything uh, that is worthwhile. Two things that have happened. Uh, a focus on DNA. The amount of DNA needed to now produce a DNA profile has gone from exponentially to what is called nine nanograms. And that is like tip of a pinhead. We are in much greater danger of contaminating that particular sample of any kind because it's floating around in the air. The first techniques were, okay, don't wear masks, uh, don't wear gloves. That was routine. People would just take whatever. Not in 1994, by then they'd learned that. Now we're looking at things like maybe masks are more appropriate and plus COVID, but also to the way we do it. We used to do it in a one way where we would just take it off a person's body. Then we learned what was called the double swab technique, where we actually wet one swab and wet that area and then take a second swab and dry it. We also learned that we don't need 20 million swabs. That's a figure of speech. Uh, we need one or two really, really good ones. But we must take a sample from everything we find. We cannot assume that one sample is not useful. The other part about DNA is that we have come to the point where the way DNA is now processed can even give us the color of the eyes of the person. We know now that we can get ancestry, we can get particular traits uh, down to color of the eyes. And that is just going above and beyond. 
The other part that's happened is nurse examiners found that this cheat that looks like it might be a bruise, but when I take the light off, it's not there. So of course, research has come around to look at that. But also to the downfall of that is, is the recognition of bruising on different colors of skin. And research has found that anyone who is not Caucasian colored is at risk to having bruises not recognized, not only by healthcare, but by forensic nurses as well. That made everyone aware. The institution of more research is how do we identify bruises on different colors of skin. The other big thing that has changed is bite marks. When I was first educated as a forensic nurse, bite marks were really supposed to be as identifiable as fingerprints. And in some cases, they are. However, there isn't as much credibility, if you want, to every bite mark that is found. The other part about changes are documentation. We've gone to very minimal documentation to extensive documentation. And the tools that we have help us make the documentation forensically sound. And that includes measurements, including descriptions, including photographs. All of that builds that particular person's history from that traumatic event. I'm wondering, since you've been in this profession for such a long time, how has it changed since you first started until today? We didn't have our forensic pathology service before 2008. And before that, there was a forensic pathologist, but even the Coroner's Act at that point said a doctor could do an autopsy, which is not correct. I mean, we need specialists and people who have knowledge and specific expertise for our examinations. There's much more science. There's much more quality. There's much more peer review, there's greater education, there's expectation now of fellowships for forensic pathologists, and we've continued to grow and learn and have a higher expectation for what service is provided and for the quality of death investigations. We're still on that, and we're a continuously improving organization, and that's something that needs to keep happening. Um, I myself have seen some significant difference in how work is done and how we approach things in a very careful way. It's also changed from a legal point of view. The criminal justice system has changed and enhanced how they do investigations, but also how they proceed through charges and court proceedings as well. We have a CAT scan and an MRI at our facility. The role that that provides, even the process of autopsies have changed dramatically from a complete evaluation of all of the organ areas in the body to now a CAT scan allowing targeted approach. So only portions of the body would be directly examined uh, internally and the other portions wouldn't. So much less intrusive, uh, much more targeted work that makes it efficient and effective, but also respectful in doing things that are necessary when we need to do them as opposed to following the exact same process all the way around. So there's lots and lots of things that have changed. Toxicology, a variety of different things. DNA has phenomenally changed criminal investigations, and there's many other things that have continued to change. So in the past, it was so difficult to take a photograph because you have to take a photo on a film and you have to print it. Now, we have very good digital technology. I remember the first digital camera I had and used it for forensic work long time before, and we have high resolution digital cameras now. When you take a photograph from a digital camera, you can enlarge the photograph and microscopic details even you can see when you enlarge the photograph. So that is a great help. And you can document and save the photograph, send it to another specialist in other side of the world within a few minutes and get an opinion. The next thing is we are using infrared and ultraviolet technology for photography to find out hidden things like tattoos, marks, scars. You can visualize very well. Even when you take sample collections, you can use a, another device called a crime scope. You can change the length of the wave 
and then start seeing different things like let's say suspected semen or other mucus and then you can change uh, into a different wavelength and then see it better and take a swab. The science, the technology has developed to discover certain things. We can analyze various things. The toxicology, for example. Toxicology has many substances they can detect now. We have a good lab in Center of Forensic Sciences. If they cannot detect something, even they refer us to another lab. So toxicological substances. And the molecular forensic pathology. We never heard about 20, uh, 30 years before in forensic medicine. So it means taking samples and connecting it to a DNA abnormality to find out whether it is present in the mother, whether it's present in the father or any other sibling or a children. Uh, so that is an amazing development. Another thing is using radiology, which we do in Toronto comprehensively. So total body CT scan. We do most of our cases when the body comes, we do complete CT scan. So that can detect bullets, any metal fragments, any uh, bony fractures, healing and heal fractures. And we can target dissections. Like in the past, people thought autopsy is a very bloody procedure, opening all body cavities, not anymore. Certain religious groups, they oppose complete autopsy. If it is a natural process, we don't have to do a complete autopsy. We can do a targeted dissection. Let's say the pathology is in the heart, or maybe pathology is in the chest cavity. And then we can identify whether it's a ruptured heart due to a heart attack, or maybe it's due to ruptured aorta. And we can do a targeted dissection. Or we can sign out the case by external examination and total body CT scan alone. So that's a new development. When we look across Canada, forensic nursing is slowly developing. And I say that because we've gone from one sexual assault nurse examiner program, which are now called, in most cases, forensic nursing programs, to one in BC and one in Winnipeg. The last count I had was over 70 in Canada. Every province except PEI has at least one form of program to deal with violence. Uh, mostly sexual violence, but some other kinds of violence, and uh, one territory also. The spread over 25 years has been slower than we all anticipated. However, when I look at what we were in 1992 and what we are now, the benchmark is been raised very high. For example, Ontario has a network for sexual violence, which includes domestic violence, elder abuse, and in some cases, child abuse. Uh, so does Nova Scotia and also New Brunswick. And British Columbia is getting very close to some sort of a network too. When I look at the whole picture of forensic violence, I have to give credit to several people. One is Virginia Lynch. Um, she is basically called the architect of forensic nursing because she designed the first forensic nursing model in 1986 out of the University of Texas and I've been blessed to have her as a mentor. She has been the seed for forensic nursing globally. One topic in particular that we would like to highlight in this episode is the tragedy of the unmarked graves of Indigenous children found across Canada. Residential schools have been active in Canada as recently as 1996. These schools intentionally took Indigenous children away from their parents to forcibly assimilate them into society. Dr. Kona Williams, U of T alumnus and Canada's first Indigenous forensic pathologist, shared in an interview... The whole residential school system was meant to destroy an entire people, but now I'm seeing Indigenous youth becoming doctors, lawyers, and scientists. They're becoming leaders. The fact that we can do these things and still know who we are and where we come from means the residential school system failed. You touched on a very important issue, and I think that's your role in being able to communicate on large systemic social issues or just more systemic issues taking place in the province. As you're aware, last year, the remains of 215 children were discovered at a residential school. 
in British Columbia. Since that time, there have been over a thousand unmarked graves that have been identified across Canada. Can you speak on the role of forensic medicine in identifying unmarked graves? The Office of Chief Coroner, Ontario Forensic Pathology Service, so our Ontario Death Investigation System, are completely engaged and available and ready to participate in the investigation of unmarked burials at or in the proximity of residential schools. And I'm working with one nation for sure, which is Six Nations and the Six Nations Secretariat, and we are uh, working together with them. There's both a criminal investigation occurring there and also a coroner's investigation So we're separated, as we talked about before. The criminal are looking for criminal aspects. And our role is is to help to understand who, which children might have died, where did they die, when did they die, what was the cause of death, and where might they be buried. Part of our work will be is reviewing records and trying to understand the circumstances. And that might help us to know where people might be buried. So answering the questions of unknown, but also giving us information that might allow us to identify any individuals that we find through or the communities find through their searches. Forensically, now going down the forensic examination, if in fact there are individual unmarked burials found or in the unmarked graves, and you'll note I'm using those two differently, if there are either situation, if the individuals are and the decision is made, and this would be community-led, nation-led, not government-led, decisions made to disinter or use the term exhume any of those remains, then we would participate more from the forensic pathology and the forensic anthropology area to examine those, well, first off, to, to disinter in a respectful manner, and then secondarily to examine those individuals and potentially uh, help to identify those individuals through examination, uh, through DNA evaluation. I will talk generally the how to do mass graves because I have been trained to do that too. And then um, we have done some similar things even in uh, other countries. So I have attended and done um, exhumations and participated uh, as an expert. So it's a team effort. We have to remember that whoever tried to take the credit, but it's a very big teamwork. First of all, um, there are other scientists who can identify this uh, area by aerial uh, scientific technology or someone has to point out otherwise this is the grave and then uh, we have to have a preparation first of all decision maybe it's a political decision maybe it's a scientific decision has to be taken and then the team has to be formed the team consists of a forensic pathologist coroners of course the police officers forensic anthropologists they are very important and forensic um, odontologists or the dentists and the soil experts archaeologists like that so the many specialists we need to involve into that the objectives are retrieving the bodies and the body parts correctly without damaging them because maybe the incident occurred some time back the bones may be not very fresh so we have to retrieve it uh, properly so that is very important to do and then after retrieving these remains we have to do a comprehensive examination by forensic anthropologists forensic pathologists and odontologists minimum and then we have to identify who is the deceased. Let's say if a bone is present, whether it is a bone or an artifact. If it is a bone, whether it is coming from a human or not. If it is a human, whether it is one individual or multiple individual. If it is one individual, whether it's a male or female, what is the age, whether there is any trauma. And then if there is a trauma, whether we can reconstruct the event, like whether they were beaten, whether they were tortured, whether they were blindfolded, whether they were handcuffed like that, those information necessary, I think, uh, for uh, the next judicial procedures. We have to do a certain testing like CT scan or X-ray, odontology for um, identification by dental, and then DNA. 
expert. If the bodies are fresh, we can do soft tissue examination and toxicology. But if they are old, we cannot do toxicology. But we can provide the identification to the families. This is so and so died here. And then the nature of the death, whether it is a natural or a traumatic. If it is a traumatic, what kind of traumatic nature and how they were disposed. So it's a kind of big decision. A team effort has to be there to identify all these issues. And then whether if you start with one side, whether you have to do multiple sites or um, what are you going to find out from that? And then uh, if it is identity and then providing death certificates and uh, providing the justice to the deceased and their families, those are the things I actually has to be very clear before we start. The Canadian Forensic Nursing Association's mission is to promote evidence-based healthcare within the field of forensic nursing. They view violence as a preventable healthcare issue and that nurses have a role in minimizing consequences of violence in part through collaboration with other professions. Could you please tell us about your work at the Canadian Forensics Nursing Association and what inspired and motivated you to join and launch this organization? Three other folks and myself got together in 2006. Two of us in British Columbia and two in Alberta formed what was called the Forensic Nurses Society of Canada. And that was the beginnings. And our membership was very you know, minimal. But we wanted to promote two things. One is forensic nursing in Canada. And one of our goals was that we eventually wanted to make forensic nursing a specialty in Canada. In 1995, the United States recognized forensic nursing as a specialty. So that was our long-term goal. We evolved slowly, etc., and we gained membership. And in 2016, we decided to change our name to become more prominently recognized in Canada. So we changed our name to the Canadian Forensic Nurses Association. So that's what it is today. The goals were pretty much the same, is promote forensic nursing in Canada, work towards a specialty, work towards promoting, bringing all the different subspecialties of forensic nursing together. Today, we're still not at some of those goals. But we also have succeeded in promoting a national picture for forensic nursing. And we do have members who are in death investigation, who are working in mental health, who are working in corrections. We're slowly bringing the subspecialties into our fold, if you want, because strength is in numbers. We have started a very active campaign in promoting when you have something going on that you might need a forensic nursing opinion, we want to be there. For example, I was able to go to the World Health Organization meeting on violence and trauma in 2015 and in 2017, representing Canadian issues as well as International Association Forensic Issues. On a personal level, I was also able to write a, the first Canadian chapter in a published book, Canadian, on forensic nursing. And that book is the Lawyer's Guide to the Forensic Sciences, which is out of Irwin Law. And that was in 2016. And so all those things bring things together that when you go searching online, you're going to find something about forensic nursing and you're going to find something about Canadian forensic nursing. And that's our goal. So I think we've already discussed all these challenging aspects of your job. So I'd like to turn that around a little bit. What is the most rewarding aspect of your job? Well, contributing to making things better. I mean, it's really, that's the highest level and the most straightforward thing I can say. And what we do is we learn, we take the voice of the deceased person, sometimes individually, but sometimes brought together, like an aggregate data analysis. I hate to talk about people as data, but bringing those learnings and louder voices and we share those with people who are in a position to make change. 
Our job is to understand the circumstances to the greatest and highest quality we can, and then to identify any issues and to raise those in a respectful, reasonable, and practical way to those who can make change. And that can be done from the case level all the way through to inquest. At the case level, you may identify an issue and we raise that to the organization that was involved or the ministry that might have contributed to the potential for change. Or we raise that in other different ways. We regularly have reporting on opioid-related deaths. We have inquests on a regular basis. We work with all kinds of different groups. And then we do specific reviews that delve down into individual issues and focus upon those. Uh, one couple years ago was reviewing police suicides of police service members and then expert group and that analyzed that and made recommendations to potentially help to reduce that happening for the future. From uh, traumatic causes, I can talk about a little bit because we are not allowed to talk to uh, families when we go to court. But how many times the families, the family members, they have come to me, they are trying to thank me when it's a child abuse case or a rape homicide, for example, oh, you did the justice for my sister, you did the justice for my family, like that, you know, it's kind of amazing to hear, like, so it feels like, oh my goodness, I have done something valuable, not the doing my job for salary, right? Job satisfaction, that is very important to hear that from families or from the Crown, sometimes even from the defence, because the defence is not always against us. They want the justice, be neutral, providing evidence-based uh, information, they appreciate us because we should not judge. What I do, I try to forget everything uh, about the incident and go by the medical evidence given in the case and start talking neutrally. And then it's up to the courts, the Crown and the, the defence to argue to which side and then get what they want. Our guest kindly shared some advice for listeners interested in pursuing a career in forensics. Well, I think it's listening to the podcast because it's so good, but I think it's really looking and understanding what does a death investigation system do and recognizing it's not all CSI, first of all, but it's looking to deal with a very challenging topic, understanding if that's something people are able to be able to do and recognizing the commitment that's required for that both emotionally, but also from a time point of view and to recognize how important it is from families to have a compassionate, caring person share their observations, listen to the families, and work together with them to give the best answers. But then also, how can they translate the information to bring it to the attention of others in a respectful way? It's an inquisitory mind. It's a compassionate, caring person. It's one who wants to make things better. Recognizing that that's the biggest part of the work Yes, there will be the criminally suspicious cases that are challenging and interesting, but they don't make up the majority of the work. They are part of the work. The Canadian Association of Forensic Nurses has a student group. It is not limited to student nurses. We welcome any student who is in any related discipline. So, for example, a criminology student, a social worker student, a medical student, even a rehabilitation student, physiotherapy, because... When patients, clients leave the doors of that healthcare facility where they may have had the privilege of having a forensic nurse, they go home to a life that needs to transition back to whatever new normal it is. So we need all the healthcare providers, we need all the physiotherapists, we need all the social workers, we need all the psychologists, we need all the sociologists as we can get on board. If they understand trauma and violence, they will aid that individual way beyond the doors of any healthcare facility. As always, a very special thank you to our guests, Sheila Early, Dr. Jantha Harath, and Dr. Derek Heyer. And of course, thank you for listening. Sheila kindly put together a list of books and resources for those interested in learning more. 
You can find this in the episode show notes along with other helpful links. This episode was hosted and led by myself, Atifa, and co-hosted by Kayvon. Angela and Vina helped with content, and Anokrati was our audio engineer. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, 